0: Good afternoon to all of you, and good morning to Hawaii from the piney woods of East Texas. We've got about a fifty degree temperature switch in coming here, so if you hear it dripping during the sermon, it's it's my perspiration. Well, we're going to get today to the Book of Zephaniah, Moving along here in the Minor Prophets, I want to do a brief review, however of where we've been so that we can see how this all ties together chapter by chapter like the stories in a book. In Hosea, Joel, and Amos, we have the problems laid out that are occurring in the church and God's judgment if there is not severe and wholehearted repentance uh, to both the the physical nation and the spiritual nation, the church. Uh, Joel really introduces the theme of the day of the Lord heavily and gives warning ahead of time this is nigh and we have space to repent during this story that unfolds through the Minor Prophets. Now, how long this lasts in terms of chronology in today's time I do not know but I know that the story gets more and more intense the further along we go here. So the problems are laid out there. In Obadiah you might remember we talked about the Edomites, both physical, who are trying to destroy Jacob, and also Edomites in the church, who have destroyed the church, or are in the process of destroying it. Then we saw Jonah, overall tells us to be very, very careful to respond quickly and accurately to everything God tells us to do. Perhaps he put Jonah there on the heels of those others as a reminder before he dives into other subjects. Then in the book of Micah, there is, again, quite a bit of warning. The introduction uh, in time sequence of the daughter of Zion, which is the daughter that God is going to select to lead his remnant people back to him. And an introduction of the great threat of the next enemy, Uh, the Assyrian, whatever form that takes here in the end time. Uh, And the book of Nahum then describes Assyria, what she will do, gives a warning again to Judah or the church, the scattered churches particularly, and then the synods upon Assyria for what they do to God's people. Then we get to the book of Habakkuk, which we covered last month. In it Habakkuk asks two questions, he being a very insignificant in terms of being known person. We know nothing about Habakkuk really, except that God inserted him here as a nobody to give a message. And Habakkuk had a couple of questions burning in his mind. The first was, how long, O Lord? And the answer basically is, while I sort out the righteous. The second question he asked was, Why not punish these other people instead of us? We're your people. And once he got over his attitudes, he began to realize that he had to embrace God. And his name is Embrace. Embrace means to hug tightly. To go into the arms of God, so to speak. Like we hug one another, as we did right here in in, uh, Gladewater, having not seen each other for a while. It was wonderful to come up and and hug each other, and say, how are you, and look at each other, and see if we were any thinner, or whatever it might have happened to us. And the interim, room. So we are to embrace God. And that is the way Habakkuk then began to tell his story, and gave a prayer. And he said, I'll stand on my watch, I will patiently wait. And the message that God gave to him then, once his attitude was straightened out, was that this is a message that will not carry If you hear this message of repentance, this message of how long and who will God punish, he said run, hurry into the embrace of God. And he says the just shall live by faith in chapter 2 and verse 4. And he talks about the pride of those who have spiritual pride and how it will be knocked down. And we get to the end of it, and right at the end... Verse 17 of chapter 3, he shows, and I think this is speaking not just of the physical nation, but specifically of the church here, although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vine, the labor of the olive shall fail, and the field shall yield no meat, the flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stalls. So he's talking about the condition of the church, along with the condition of the world around us in Israel as well. But we're zeroing in in this series primarily on the church because that is the key for us right now. The key for the rest of Israel will come in the millennium and the great white throne judgment with the beginning of the softening and the humbling process and the great tribulation. But we need to humble ourselves and become meek ahead of time and we need to realize that the churches that we see around us, the foals, the flocks, the herds, the trees, the vines are not going to clear, That they are going to come down and come apart, just as the physical nation very shortly will as well. So the emphasis in the end of the book of Habakkuk is individual responsibility. And that's what he says in verse 18 here of chapter 3. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like hinds feet. And he will make me to walk upon my high places. So a hind or a deer runs very rapidly, can run uphill, over obstacles, over rocks, over cliffs. almost well, most cliffs anyway. And God is going to make us that way if we embrace him. So that we can walk on the high places, spiritually speaking. So Habakkuk's message is the judgment has come, or is coming, but the judgment is set to put it better, upon the world and upon the church, that both are going to be trodden down and come apart. So it is an individual matter to turn to God and embrace Him with our whole heart and to live and walk in faith and patience before our God if we are to be saved through all of this and to walk on the high places. Now, this same theme continues in the book of Zephaniah because he renews and revives the theme of the day of the Lord right off the bat and says that the judgment is set for the church overall and for the physical nations of Israel. And then he zeroes in on personal salvation through the remnant of the church. Just as there will be a remnant of physical Israel that go into the millennium, there will be a remnant of the church who goes in as the first fruits. So that is the overall emphasis of both these books. This Zephaniah now is the last prophet who wrote before the captivity of Jer- Judah and Jerusalem by the Chaldeans. In other words, the last warning came through this man. And then the fall came, very shortly thereafter. Uh, here's a, note, a quote from Barnes, he's, uh, Barnes Notes, the commentator. All these particular judgments contain principles of God's judgments at all times. That in Zephaniah they seem all to converge in the love of God for the rem- remnant of his people. The nation he calls, a nation not desired or not desirable. My, my word, Desirable. And another comment he makes down here, it said he foretells a sifting time, which we'll see down in chapter 3. And if we're not in a sifting time right now, I don't know what we're in. The name Zephaniah itself means, the Lord has hid. Habakkuk meant embrace God. And Those who embrace God, Zephaniah follows with, the Lord will hide the Lord has hid. So we're going to see before we finish this that God is going to take care of those who embrace Him, who turn to Him wholeheartedly as Habakkuk told us. Those who run spiritually, in other words. Who don't sit half asleep but are wide awake and running toward God. Now, Zephaniah wrote up until the 12th year of King Josiah. Josiah being uh, as righteous as any king in the history of Israel, and he began the reforms in his kingship very early. Uh, he took the throne, I think, when he was only, what was it, eight years of age, as I recall. And uh, he didn't probably do a great deal of reforming at that point, but. Later on in his life, he began to truly reform, to kick the idols out, to help Israel get back to God. So it's interesting that uh, he wrote during the reign of Josiah, up until the twelfth year of the Josiah at least, uh, just before the captivity re- occurred and during a time of reformation. That is reforming, re- reforming to be like God. And that is the emphasis that we are under right now is a reformation spiritually because we have drifted and into idol worship of ourselves and other idols and it's time that those are put away. So we are very, very much talking here about reforming before the final curtain has dropped, as we'll see as we get into the book. Barnes makes a comment here that... The extirpation of idolatry could not, it appears, be accomplished at once. Notice anything familiar there? The extirpation of idolatry in me does not come out overnight or in you. This is a process that we have to keep working at day after day after day to extirpate our own thoughts and come to have every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ. So the setting for the book of Zephaniah is very, very much just like what we have today. And certainly applies to us today. Interestingly another, enough, another comment he makes is the worship of Baal was cut off not through Josiah, uh, but as Zephaniah prophesied, through the captivity. Jeremiah asserts its continuance during his long prophetic office. In other words, the warning came through Zephaniah. and They were about to go into captivity shortly after this. See, Jeremiah began his message uh, in the 13th year of Josiah. One year after, apparently, uh, Zephaniah gave his. And Jeremiah's prophecy went on for apparently over 50 years, he prophesied. Now, that's interesting, too, if you stop and think for a moment. They were going to go into 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Jeremiah prophesied for apparently a little over 50 years, according to the commentators. Now, compare that with today. The church of God has been in captivity of the daughter of Babylon, as Zechariah 2 tells us. And Herbert Armstrong was raised up and preached for over 50 years. That we are to, with much the same message of Zephaniah in that sense. A warning of the end time, that the gospel had not been preached for 2,000 years. As you will recall, he said that very often. And he preached against Baal. He preached against uh, the Queen of Heaven and Easter, against Christmas, against all these things that the so-called Christian nation of Israel had lapsed into. And he set those things straight in the Church of God, just as Jeremiah preached about the very same things and for about the same amount of time. Now, we have reached very close to 70 years of the Church today. I don't know how God counts it, but Herbert Armstrong began to be converted around 1926-27, and the Church began to be actually organized around 1933-34. seventy years later puts you anywhere from... uh, 96 from 1926 to 2003 or 4, if you count 1933 when I think it was organized as a corporation, or 34 when it went into uh, the world as a witness via radio. So we're right in the neighborhood of 70 years, and Zechariah addresses that, the world is at rest, and then he very quickly says, to save yourself, O Zion. So perhaps we are nearing the end, of this captivity where the church is shackled in that sense spiritually by Babylon. It is all around us and in us and among us, and we have to be putting it out. But maybe the physical release from that is not too far away either, at least I hope so, if there is any connection here. I don't want to go into that uh, any deeper than that because that is a story that will be unfolded in the book of Zechariah in more detail. But I wanted to mention it here because Zephaniah is... The last warning before the captivity took place in their particular case. And now, if we move that down to the end time age, maybe we are at the end of the captivity almost. And by the way, there is the chronology that explains why uh, there is an apparent contradiction between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah said, Build houses. Um, settle down, it's going to be a long captivity. And he prophesied just before the captivity occurred and then through much of the captivity. And since it was going to be a long time, it was time to settle down and do those things. Here again we see a parallel with Herbert Armstrong. He settled down in Southern California and he built colleges, he built homes, he settled in for a long captivity in that sense. Now, Ezekiel 11 tells us not to build houses and to preach against those who say it is a long time and to build houses. But Ezekiel wrote between 140 and 50 years after the captivity occurred or started. Therefore, the Jews, for the most part, in Israel did not even have access to the book of Ezekiel, you see. And Israel had settled down, or Judah, so much in Babylon that when God did allow them to leave, only a minority, a remnant, left and went back to Jerusalem. So here we have a circumstance as well where God says there is a remnant right at the end and they will come and build the latter temple, which is the next book after the book of Zephaniah. So you have, again, only a remnant who will respond and come and do what God says, just like you did back then. So now is not the time in the end, because that's what Ezekiel is talking about. Ezekiel starts right off the bat with, I'm going to destroy 90% plus, I'm referring to chapter 5 here, of your population, and spiritually speaking, of the church as well. So now is not the time to settle down, and I think that pretty well explains the difference between Jeremiah and Ezekiel's instruction. It's simply a matter of a different time in chronology that they're talking about. One at the beginning of the captivity, settle down, it's going to be long. Uh, Settle in for the long haul, where Ezekiel says, don't do that. It's coming quickly, speaking here of the end time. Now that I've back rest that much where was I here um, here's another interesting thought that you might compare with today it, this again from Barnes it was the custom of the great conquerors of the east not to destroy capitals but to repeople them with subjects obedient to themselves it has been postulated that we would have a great nuclear war and America would be destroyed by that But the way it seems to be shaping up in the world today is that why would they destroy the infrastructure? Why not come in and use it, kill the people and take them captive into other countries and use what is here? And if we're having betrayal from within, which it appears to me fits the pattern of the Bible, wherein the church was betrayed from within, that probably will happen in the physical nation of Israel as well. And... Our people will be sold into slavery, and those who do not go easily will be killed. Uh, also, famine and pestilence will come as a result of sin, and all of this is a result of sin, and God allows it. But it may be that when this nation is taken, the people will be taken away, just as they did in the past. That is the historical way that the Chaldeans and the Assyrians did it. Now, it is interesting that what Zephaniah prophesied here in the days of Josiah, did shortly thereafter come to pass. But Zephaniah writes from the standpoint of the day of the Lord right at the end. So there was a message there to Judah in that day. But the message for spiritual Judah today, and for physical Israel for that matter, is what is contained in the book of Zephaniah as his first and foremost message. Now those people back then probably thought it was written for them, and certainly it was, and it happened. We, in looking at the context and analyzing the day of the Lord as laid out in Revelation and other places, have to realize that it was written actually in a larger sense for us. And if it did come to pass back then, then it is surely going to come to pass again. And probably very shortly, because he prophesied very shortly before it happened. As Zephaniah does gather, and I'm not going to go through all of this for sake of time, if you want to look it up you can in various commentaries, but he used quite a few expressions, or pieces of expressions, or the same words that Isaiah, Joel, Amos, and Habakkuk used, showing that he had access to those prophets that came before him, And he was building on what they had written. There are quite a few examples of that given by the commentaries, but uh, we'll we'll bypass that. Uh, At this time, when this was written, the Assyrian Empire was still in existence, and Nineveh was not yet conquered, which took place, according to uh, Barnes' discussions, uh, in the closing years, or possibly not until after the death of Josiah. So the Assyrian is going to attack us, and then God is going to take care of the Assyrian, as we'll see very quickly here as we get into the book. All right, let's now, if you will, turn to the book of Zephaniah. Maybe you're already there. <coughs> This is the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah the son of Cushy, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So from that we can extrapolate that Zephaniah was a Jew because he was the son of the Jewish, our grandson of the Jewish king Hezekiah. And he is written writing overall with Judah in mind. Now, as we've seen in some of the other books, I, in my mind at least, I'm basically writing off worldwide is Israel, which was concluded in unbelief, pretty much for the moment. And we're dealing with those who broke off, which I have concluded, in, from reading various scriptures, is referring uh, Judah is referring to the scattered brethren uh, who have been scattered in this captivity spiritually that we're in at the moment and going into. Even though in a sense we're coming out of the captivity of Babylon after 70 years, we're still in a scattering here. You know, it's, it's a principle of what is happening, a pattern of what is happening today. But he gets right to it. Verse 2. I will utterly consume all things from off the land, says the Lord. This is not a maybe. Judgment, as I said before, is set. Where is it back there? He says, pray not for this people. They will not repent. The judgment is coming. There's no way to get out of it at this point. I will consume a man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven. When he says, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, my margin says, by taking away, I will make an end. I think that's an interesting way to put it. He's going to make an end of all this, of man's experience and Satan's uh, shenanigans here on this earth. So, he's not just talking about uh, consuming as he did with Noah, because that did not put an end to all this. It only allowed it to start over smaller and grow back. This time, he says, I'll make an end of it. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fishes of the sea and the stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from off the land, says the Lord. So this is much broader than just Israel. This is talking about the whole world and the day of the Lord and the end. I just received a note from someone recently, well, last week, who was anticipating getting into this book because she said it was, I think, the, her favorite book in the whole Bible because it shows the power, the might, the awe of God and what he is about to work on this earth. I hadn't thought of Zephaniah as being in in one sense that dramatic, but boy, you start reading it and this language is, is pretty powerful. I will stretch out my hand upon Judah, verse 4, and upon all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off the remnant of Baal from this place. This was written during the reign of Josiah, when perhaps he had begun to reform somewhat, but had not accomplished that yet. And there was still a remnant of Baal in Israel. And though we may have started toward overcoming in the church and putting out our idols, there is still a remnant of Baal in every last one of us. And we have to continue to work on that. I think it's important to bring that out here. In the name of the Chemerims with the priests. Chemerims is simply Hebrew for idolatrous priests. Number 36, 49, and if you wish. He's going to cut off Baal and the idolatrous idolatrous priests. And there's several ends here. God is going to include a lot of people. And them that worshiped the host of heaven upon the housetops. They did go up to on top of the houses, a lot of flat topped houses in that day in Jerusalem, and there they could see the sun to worship it. Uh, There they could worship Baal in peace, I suppose, and they had their sacrifices up there. Uh, Sometimes we put serving Baal at the top of our list, too. Uh, You might say we go to the top of the house to be sure we can see Baal. And them that worship, and that swear by the Lord, and that swear by Malcolm. Interesting, he puts those together as if the worship of God and the worship of Baal were coexisting side by side. You cannot serve two masters, and that may be the case here. We have some people, and every one of us for that matter, try to to straddle the fence. We try to hang on to some of the things of this world, and yet at the same time, worship God. So by our actions, we're swearing by both, and that is unacceptable to God. And them that are turned back from the Lord. So, looking at the church today, there are some who have turned away from all the teachings of God to the teachings of Baal, or Satan, or Protestantism, or Catholicism, or wherever they've gone. And those that have not sought the Lord, nor inquired of him. The Hebrew here apparently emphasizes seeking the Lord, and the nitty-gritty of it is diligently to seek God diligently. I think that would include quite a number today in the Church of God, or the greater Church of God, including Church of the Great God. That we may be seeking God, we may be inquiring of God, but we may be doing it lackadaisically. We may not yet have our whole hearts in embracing God, as Habakkuk put it. To really embrace You know, we're willing to come up maybe and shake his hand and say, Hi God, how are you? But are we ready to throw our arms around him, around his word, around his ways, and make them our thoughts as we toss and turn at night and as we wake up in the morning and as we go out our front door, so that the things of God are number one in our minds. That is the force of the Hebrew here in verse 6. Not just to seek God, but to do it diligently. Verse 7, hold your peace at the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. He's saying, I'm going to cut off man and beast. The day of the Lord is at hand. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has bid his guests. You might remember several places in the Psalms, and whether it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel, I didn't look these up, but you'll remember the language where he said, all of you gather. Uh, Isaiah, for one, did say that. Uh, gather all the nations. Get yourselves together. Form a confederacy. Form a conspiracy. Give me your best shot. I'm preparing a sacrifice of your body, blood, and bones. And I'm inviting all of you. And then he invited the fowls of the air and so on to come to eat of the feast. So God means business here. He's bid his guests, or sanctified his guests and the Hebrew, which means he's set them apart. Set them aside, got them ready. And it shall come to pass in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such as are clothed with strange apparel. So this is a judgment that is set and we have to be dressed properly or we are going to go with the blood. I mean, our blood will be shed. Isaiah 52.1 tells us to put on our holy garments. I have Revelation 3 and Revelation 7 with the first fruit it talks about putting on the garments, the white garments of holiness and righteousness. Matthew 22 the wedding feast says if we come without a wedding garment without the holy righteous character of God we will be cast out and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth so anybody who has on strange apparel is in trouble dirty clothes in the same day also will I punish all those that leap on the threshold which fill their masters houses with violence and deceit does that mean it's a sin to jump up and down on your threshold? It's your house. But apparently what this means is that there are those who don't pay any attention to the threshold, but they run in and out of the houses to sin very quick to bring fraud and stolen goods into their master's homes. And uh, the fact that they're crossing his threshold means nothing to them. And we are in God's house. Did we bring... Our sins across the threshold into His house. Are we ashamed of our sins? Can we come in, shame us uh, not shamefacedly? Can we come in with pride and vanity and spiritual self righteousness, or do we fear to bring our sins into the temple of God or the house of God? Do we fill our master's house with violence and deceit. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that there shall be the noise of a cry from the fish gate, and an howling from the second, and a great crashing from the hills. Now we'll see that this is talking about a financial crash. The fish gate was on the north, perhaps the northeast side of Jerusalem. Uh, And that is where the attack tended to come from because it was the weakest area of the city in terms of physical protection. Is it ironic that our weakest link financially is in the Northeast, New York, and about the uh, Wall Street? It would be very interesting that God uses these things and we translate them from the physical Jerusalem which is today Sodom and Egypt to where the majority of Israel is today and certainly that financial system which affects the whole world and and Israel as a whole. Uh, And howling from the second, they did enlarge the city and the wall was extended, so he's talking about perhaps an extension here of the city of Jerusalem. And the fish gate was on the same side and a great crashing from the hills. Now the commentators tie in Mount Moriah and uh, Mount Zion here because if you're attacked from below, where do you go? you head for the high ground? Well, Mount Moriah was the seat of religious uh, worship and Jerusalem and Zion is where uh, the civil government was and where most of the wealthy people lived. They were up up the hill, Snob Hill we might call it, or it came, became that, uh, there in Jerusalem. So, the great crashing from the hills has something to do with the people who had the money. How, you inhabitants of Maktesh. Maktesh literally means mortar. Uh, as a mortar and pestle, where corn was ground and where business was transacted in the city of Jerusalem. So it was a financial district. Uh, Here again, uh, he's he's building something. But the financial district, the financial things, the wealthy people, uh, Moriah and Zion, will fall. Now going on, and it shall come to pass, at that time, I'm in verse 12. Well, wait a minute, they didn't finish verse 11. Uh, this ties it to the financial things precisely, or exactly. The how, you inhabitants of Maktesh, or the market area, for all the merchant people are cut down. All they that bear silver are cut off. So it's talking about a financial crash. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with candles. The simile of candles being used here because there's no place to hide. When God goes through, he's going to shine a candle in every dark place. If you think you can get away from this judgment, which has been set, and this crash which is going to fall, you've got another thing coming because God's going to light the place up with candles and find everybody. There's no way to escape his judgment other than the venue of repentance. And punish the men that are settled on their leaves. Now this is a very interesting analogy as well. It is a winemaking term and it had to do with the dregs of the wine in the bottom of the cask or the bottom of whatever they had it in. It wasn't poured from one vessel to another, let settle, and then poured and leaving the dregs in the bottom each time until all the dregs were sorted out. So what he's saying here is that the, the dregs of the wine are defiled and really not good. People are defiled. The dregs of humanity, drunk on bad wine and talking like drunks. And he says they will say, The Lord will not do good, neither will he do evil. Can you imagine a a drunk saying that? (laughs) Drunk on bad wine. Ah, the Lord can't do anything. He's not involved. Let's have some more wine. And there are a lot of people today who are not paying attention to these warnings. And if we're drunk on the dregs, we are in trouble. So we can't be settled on our leaves, or on the dregs. Because then we fear nothing. Rocks aren't afraid of much anything. They'll step off of something high. They'll walk out in the snow and lay down. They're just not afraid of anything. But God is telling us here, we'd better fear Him, and fear this judgment that is coming, and not just settle back. Spiritually, Perhaps it describes people who do not really know what is going on or what is coming down and rest easily in their confidence that they are okay. I'm okay, <laughs> as the drunk would say. And you're okay, he would say. Once he got too much bad wine and then nobody's okay. But we won't talk any more about drunks, I guess. That's enough but we are in spiritual trouble if we are not drinking good wine and if we are not doing what we need to be doing. Therefore their goods shall become a booty, and their houses a desolation. They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them. Now You see the church woven through this thread. Even though this is a financial crash that is going to occur, to the United States as Israel and probably to the world in that sense because everything is tied to our economy. But what about all these churches that are out here trying to do the work? Their money will go with it too. Their capacity to preach the gospel will also go away. What about all these spiritual houses that are being built? I could refer you back to Isaiah 5 here and again for sake of time we've already covered that several times. But the spiritual houses are going to be torn down. God is going to tear the hedge down from around the church. Already has. And it is being invaded and torn down. Church after church, Isaiah 5. Three big ones are coming down. Zechariah 11. So on a physical level right now, there is a building boom in this country that is unbelievable. You can sit on the top of the mountain above Denver and almost watch the subdivisions marching over the hills to the east and to the south, and to the north. And every city I go to, it's the same way. They're building, building, building. So this building boom is going to end in destruction, and even though they've built these houses, they're not going to live in them and rear children in them. And churches are being built, built, built everywhere as one group splits and splits and splits again. But they're all coming down. All but one, actually, which will be built. Let's see, where was I now? Oh, in in verse 13, They shall also build houses, but not inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards, here again the parallel being of the church, but not drink the wine thereof. The great day of the Lord is near, it is near, and hastes greatly. Very much the, uh, the words of Habakkuk and Isaiah, it is near, it is near. Even the voice of the day of the Lord, the mighty man shall cry there bitterly. So no matter how great And mighty and wealthy, a man might think he is, or how wonderful he is spiritually, again using the church in the analogy, he'll cry bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, distress, a day of wasteness and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. There again, he's using the words of Joel. A day of the trumpet, and alarm against the defense cities. Those are fenced and think they're okay. Fenced by their own righteousness, perhaps. Or self-righteousness. And against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men that they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood shall be poured out as dust and their flesh as the dung. Pretty graphic analogy if you think about it. So physically... When this happens, mankind is not going to know what to do or where to go or how to cope with it. And he won't be able to cope with it. And the same is true of those who walk blindly from a spiritual standpoint. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. And this is already beginning to happen to the church. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. God is a jealous God, he says. We had better believe God is a jealous God, brethren. He will not take kindly to those who bring sin into his temple, into his house, and do not respect the threshold, the door of his house. For he shall make even a speedy riddance of all them that dwell in the land. So overall here he's talking about a physical destruction of the whole earth, of Israel, of Judah. And he'll boil it down here specifically to his church and his people and that remnant a little later. Now let's go on to chapter 2 and verse 1. Gather yourselves together, yes gather together, O nation not desired, or not desirable, or desirous. We in our present form as a physical nation and as a church are not desirable to God because we do not have our holy garments all on. Perhaps we're still washing them out and they're turning a little whiter and not quite as brown, I hope. But we don't have it all together yet. So he says, You shameless people, I think it's more like it in the, the uh, Hebrew. Uh, we're unworthy, but perhaps we will be given grace, as we'll see. And there's a, a contingency here. So he says, gather ourselves together. And if you look it up, it means as one gathers sticks to build a fire, uh, to gather something up. And I think that there are three le- levels here that we need to consider. The first is by far the very most important in the long-range scheme of things, and that is to get yourself together, to pull yourself together, to gather yourself up spiritually, to repent, take stock of yourself, get everything coordinated, make sure that you are right with God and have your holy garments on. That is the first level here and the most important level, because if we don't do this then that which follows will also not happen. The second level may be to gather into one group or organization as one gathers sticks into a bundle but God is going to begin to gather his remnant of people together into one organization. It is incumbent upon us to find out where that is. To take the personal responsibility to determine where God is working, where he is going to work. Now, to prove this, I would refer you to the book of Haggai. I don't want to get into the story too much, because that's next, and I want to keep this in order. But he does say there that he is going to gather the remnant church together, along with Joshua and Zerubbabel, and build the latter temple. He says here, to gather ourselves together, verse 2, before the decree bring forth... Before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the Lord come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So this gathering process of gathering ourselves up individually spiritually, of beginning to gather the church together into one temple, his remnant people from wherever they may be, has to begin to occur, because that's what occurs next in the story in the book of Haggai. Third, we may have to gather into one location, that is, geographical. This would be the third in line, and the third in importance, and the third in chronology. In other words, the day of the Lord is coming, the end is near, the place of safety is not far off. So, on a third level, God is going to gather his people together. Each one gathers personally, individually, and spiritually to embrace God with diligence. Then he puts the church together into one organization, the book of Haggai, and in many places talk about how he is going to bring all his people from the four corners together in one location, and that he will be with them. Now, he gives some instruction to go with this. Verse 3. Seek you the Lord, all you meek of the earth, which have wrought his judgment. Seek righteousness. Seek meekness. It may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. So bottom line here is spiritual condition that we seek meekness and righteousness. This is what we need to be preaching, what we need to be teaching, what we need to be on an individual level, doing. It may be you shall be hit. Now that ties in very closely with uh, Luke twenty-two thirty-six. I think it is, which says, pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. It's not automatic. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, I'm in the church, won't get it. Because if we've not gathered ourselves up spiritually and we try to knock on the door, and come in without wedding garments, we're going to be in trouble. So along with telling us to gather ourselves up, chapter 2, verse 3 is probably as important a verse as there is in this whole book. Seek the Lord, as we said before, diligently. Those which have wrought his judgment. Well, who is that talking to? There's nobody else on earth that has wrought God's judgment other than the Church of God his people that he's called out of this world. So he's talking to us. No one else on this earth even knows what righteousness is. And most men walk in vanity and pride. Seek meekness. One of the primary keys to peace and unity. And God says when he gathers his people together in one organization, he will bring peace there, Haggai 2, nine, I think it is. In this place will I bring peace. And we cannot have peace as long as we're filled with vanity and pride and will not consider others and esteem them better than ourselves. Now, whether or not we will be hid in the day of the Lord's anger is dependent upon having these attitudes and praying that we be accounted worthy. Not just assuming because we're in the church or in a particular organization in the church that we're going to be there. Gaza shall be forsaken, and Ashkelon a desolation. I'm in 2 4 now. They shall drive out Ashdod at the noonday, and Ekron shall be rooted up. Here he addresses the enemies of Israel. Those are cities of the Philistines on the coast. So not only is the world going to be destroyed, man and beast, but then he tells Judah that they will have a financial crash, and it probably will be worldwide at least for a time, until the beast says, I have a better answer, and solves the problem, and all the world bows before the beast and says, Oh, yes, your system will work. But ours has to go away. And our enemies also are going to be destroyed. That partly answers Habakkuk's question. Why do you punish us and not them? Well, you have sinned, Judah, my people, and I will then punish the people who punish you, but I will use them as the rod of my anger. So there's a confederacy of people that God is talking about here. I don't know who the modern Philistines are or just where they are, but uh, they're involved, and certainly they're at least involved in the pattern as one of our enemies, and we have many today as the peoples of Israel. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Oh uh, Let's see, I looked that one up. Carthites means cutters off. It reminded me of the book of Obadiah where the Edomites laid in wait to cut off Jacob and will lay in wait to cut the church off when she escapes, as per Revelation 12. So Terethite simply means cutters off, those who try to cut off Israel. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will even destroy you that there shall be no inhabitant. And a seacoast shall be dwellings and cottages for shepherds and for folds for flocks. In other words, when I come through and destroy you, there's nothing going to be left except that which a shepherd and a flock might dine on outside the cities of what's left along the coast. So this is specifically to those Philistines. And the coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. So when God cuts off our enemies, he's going to give us their land. You know, want to know how this thing's going to wind up in the nation of Israel, the, the Holy Land? God's telling you right here. And not only that, but the spiritual coast, the spiritual land, is going to be given to the first fruits—those who are faithful to God and seek meekness and righteousness. Verse eight: I have heard the reproach of Moab and the revilings of the children of Ammon, whereby they have reproached my people and magnified themselves against their border. So here are some more traditional enemies of Israel. Therefore as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be as Sodom, and the children of Ammon as Gomorrah, even the breeding of nettles and salt pits, and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people, the remnant, the residue, shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them. I don't know exactly how this is going to turn out, but we saw in Micah 4 that God tells us to go up against the Assyrian. He tells us just before that to rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I think this has a lot to do with the work that is done under the two witnesses. They will be given power to to, uh, perform plagues, to turn blood to water. No, excuse me, it's the other way around. Water to blood. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Just as in Egypt. And what happened there with Moses and Aaron was the absolute destruction of the Egyptian Empire. So those two men, along with the church that backs them and supports them, because it talks about more than them there in Micah 5, or 4, where it talks about seven principal men and eight, uh, whatever, it, uh, chiefs or princes or whatever it says, that it is bigger than that, that the daughter of Zion herself is to rise and thresh. So you and I are included in this. We're not to run from all of this. We're to stay and face. And by the power of Almighty God, the little daughter of Zion is going to prevail over the great kingdoms of this world. They just simply cannot do anything about it. And if they try, fire will come from their mouth and they will be destroyed up until the very end when they are killed as individuals. So when he says, my people shall spoil them, and the remnant of my people shall possess them, they're going to come in and invade our land. When the Assyrian comes into your land, is the way Micah puts it, God will cause them to be defeated. And then when the battle of Armageddon comes, of course Christ is going to put them all down and make them a sacrifice at his picnic. And then he's going to give his people All those lands back. Verse 10. This shall they have for their pride, because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. When is all this going to hit? I don't know. I just heard about a family that killed themselves who had recently been a part of one of the splinter groups of God's church. And now it's being tied together as a cultish thing. And so on and so forth. They automatically make that connection. What is going to be the domino that falls that causes all this to start? I don't know. But every time something like this happens, you have to wonder. This shall they have for their pride. Notice the contrast here between his instruction to seek meekness and righteousness and the pride that will be destroyed. Because they have reproached and magnified themselves against the people of the Lord of hosts. That is, against the church and ultimately against physical Israel. The Lord will be terrible to them, for he will banish all the gods of the earth. Josiah's reformation hearing, uh, Perhaps Zephaniah is referring to that. And men shall worship him, every one from his place, even all the isles of the heathen. So God is going to start the day of the Lord, and before it's finished, everybody is going to worship God or be dead. This moves on into the millennium. It moves on in the church to those who are accounted worthy to go to the place of safety as opposed to those who stay behind and spiritually perish and perhaps even physically perish as other scriptures indicate. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. Well, what does Ethiopia have to do with it today? Well, at the time this was written, Israel's Uh, influence only went as far as Ethiopia, apparently. So it's talking about the furthermost enemies of Israel. Today it might be on more of a worldwide basis because we have enemies everywhere, but at that time it only went as far as Ethiopia, apparently, according to the commentators at least. And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria, and will make Nineveh a desolation and dry like a wilderness. So through the two witnesses and the church at the end <coughs> there will be at least a standoff if God's people do not destroy them and then Christ will finish the job and flocks shall lie down in the midst of her all the beasts of the nations both the carmer and the Bittern, and so on shall lodge in the upper lintels of it their voice shall sing in the windows desolation shall be in the thresholds or he shall uncover the cedar work in other words the whole empire is going down the houses will not even be safe in Assyria because God is going to have birds sitting in the windows and on the thresholds of the doors. And the cedar is not what was put on the outside but what decorated the inside. So God is going to make a complete destruction. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt carelessly that said in her heart, I am. That's the name of God. I am. And there is none beside me. How How is she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down in, Everyone that passes by her shall hiss and wag his hand. So they thought they were secure. (coughs) But this world-ruling, new world order, Assyrian empire that is rising is going to be totally crushed by God. That's why it tells us in Isaiah 8, It is coming, it is here, it will be, but don't fear it, fear me, because he is able to destroy it. Of course, we're worried about our heights. And will they get us before he gets them? But he says, don't worry about it. Worship him who is able to kill both body and soul, not him who is just able to kill body. Which, by comparison, is very unimportant. And it takes some mental adjustment and some spiritual adjustment to say, I will risk my physical body for the kingdom of God we need to be making that adjustment because we may be very well called upon to make that choice, some of us. It's interesting, God says, they'll kill you, but not one hair of your head will be harmed. (laughs) That's uh, almost a paradox, it sounds. But even though they kill the body, if we are spiritually right, not one hair of our head will be harmed. Will be in the kingdom of God and live forever. But what's this body as compared to the spiritual body of Christ? If he's living in us, that will be preserved and not one hair of that harmed. I don't think this means they can cut your liver out, but they'll leave your hair alone. <laughs> I think it means that the body indeed may die, but not one hair will be lost on a spiritual level. All right. Now he changes the subjects again, and let's hasten on because we've got one chapter to cover here, and I've got about ten minutes left. He changes subjects to Jerusalem again. Woe to her that is filthy and polluted, to the oppressing city. How has Jerusalem been oppressing? Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the stone of the prophets. She has oppressed God's true people. The Jewish nation, Israel as a whole, has always denied those whom God sent, and it will happen again. She obeyed not the voice. She received not correction. So whether it's on a physical level with the nations of Israel and Judah, or whether it is talking about the church, and I prefer to emphasize that, the church obeyed not the voice. She received not the chastening of the Lord. She trusted not in the Lord. She drew not near to her God. That which he has admonished us to do in the book of Habakkuk, to embrace God and to turn with our whole heart in many places. The church has not done this overall. And this is the last warning, brethren. This is it. Her princes within her are roaring lions. That reminds me of Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34. About the ministry devouring the flocks. Her judges are evening wolves. They gnaw not the bones till tomorrow. And the force of the Hebrew is here is they eat it up and don't save any bones until the morning. They are ravenous and greedy and want us to pray and pay, mostly pay and stay. Her prophets are light and treacherous persons. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary by light and treacherous, it means, uh, in the Hebrew idiom, apparently they just sort of bubble over, they boil. All of this garbage is coming out of them. And they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they say, peace, when there is destruction coming. And they preach, we have 30 or 40 years left, whereas Ezekiel said, don't build houses, you won't live in them. They have done violence to the law. Do you think the law of God is still in effect? This is an end-time prophecy about the day of the Lord. And it's still talking about the law here. They've done away with it. The just Lord is in the midst thereof. He will not do iniquity. Every morning does he bring his judgment to light. He fails not, but the unjust knows no shame. We can come to the church of God and cart our sins right along with us. Not afraid to leap on his threshold. (coughs) Where is our shame? A Laodicean jumps across the threshold saying, I'm clothed. But he is naked and knows no shame. He doesn't realize he's unclothed. He really, really thinks he is clothed. It is spiritual deception of self. Brethren, we have to cut through this and and realize my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. This applies to me. And be ashamed of our sins rather than coming in with our big smile on and our nice suit and thinking we are clothed. Verse 6. I have cut off the nations. Their towers are desolate. I made their streets waste that none passes by. The the towers were the watchtowers. That which was the strongest, most impregnable part. I will cut them down, he says, or make them desolate. Their cities are destroyed so that there is no man, that there is none inhabitant. The day of the Lord is taking the nations down, it's also taking the churches down. They're already coming down. One at a time and they're getting fewer and fewer people in each one, for the most part. I said, Surely you will fear me, though you will receive instruction, so their dwelling should not be cut off. Howsoever I punished them, but they rose early and corrupted all their doings. God began to destroy the church and worldwide. And he thought, Surely they would hear. Surely they'll wake up. Surely they'll take this as an individual responsibility to put on the clothes of righteousness and holiness. But come to find out, that wasn't enough. We didn't listen. He says, not only Israel in Jeremiah 3, but the treacherous sister Judah also has defiled her garments. Surely they would have heard. Surely we would fear God. But apparently, we haven't feared God in the way He's talking about because the be destruction and the chastening and the desolation continues in the churches today. All right, here's the big word, therefore, in verse 8. Therefore, wait you upon me, says the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. And he's not kidding. For then will I turn to the people of pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. When he's through, he's going to have our attention, and we will fear. Those who survive this desolation of the church will fear and obey. And those who survive the physical tribulation and going into the millennium are going to fear God because they are going to see a desolation which will make Egypt look pale by comparison. He even says that you will not even remember Jerusalem, I mean Egypt, when you see this great deliverance that God is going to do for his people. I think that's Jeremiah 23. Verse in from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, from the ends of the earth, in other words, and their point of reference geographically in that day. My suppliants, those who supplicate me, even the daughter of my dispersed shall bring my offering. So his dispersed church, in that day you shall not be ashamed for all your doings wherein you have transgressed against me, for then I will take away out of you, out of the midst of you, them that rejoice in your pride." And you shall no more be haughty because of my holy mountain, or in my holy mountain, is a better translation. You'll not be haughty in my holy mountain, God says. You're not going to cross my threshold with your sins. The Protestant, take me as I am, Lord, is not going to work unless we am changed. unless we put on holy, righteous garments. He says in Isaiah, He will purge out the rebels. He is going to sift the tares. He is going to clean the church up, and only a remnant is going to remain. And we'll see that in Haggai. I will also leave in the midst of you an afflicted and poor people, New King James says, a meek and humble people. So pride is going away. And he's going to have a humble and meek people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity and speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Then he says, Sing, O daughter of Zion. We've covered who the daughter of Zion is. She is the daughter that excels, Proverbs 31. She is the envy of the other daughters in Song of Songs. She is the one God chooses. I did not realize it until, I think, yesterday I looked this up. (coughs) And uh, Gosh Barnes again, who says, Daughter of Zion, and in quotes he puts, The thirsty. A thirst for God is what daughter of Zion means. Now when he says diligent, And turn to me with your whole heart, That's who the daughter of Zion is going to be comprised of. Those who thirst for God. Isn't that what Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount? To hunger and thirst for righteousness. So by very definition, this daughter of Zion that God chooses is going to be those who are athirst. Like a man walking in the desert, seeking God while he may be found. So if you want to know who comprises the daughter of Zion, which remnant God puts together, it's going to be those who are thirsty for the ways of God. All I can say is, wow, that was a real eye-opener to me to see that, to recognize that he says daughter of Zion, and then to understand the etymology of the expression. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Sing, you thirsty, in other words. And this sounds like Isaiah fifty-four, one, where he tells us to flee from Babylon in chapter 52, he goes through the sacrifice of Christ and shows what he does for us there. And then in fifty four one, I believe it says, Sing, O ye barren. And he says, broaden your tents and lengthen your cords because God is going to make the daughter of Zion increase. Those who were thirsty are all going to come together for the same water, in other words. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem, The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of you. We'll see this emphasized in um, Zechariah 2 when we get to it. You shall not see evil anymore. So once God puts the church back together, it will never see evil again. The church will be put together. It will eventually go to a place of safety. In other words, it will never be walked on again and changed when Jesus Christ returns in glory. And it will spread through the millennium, through the rest of physical Israel in the world, once that happens. But it has to happen first in the church. Because the daughter of Zion, the first fruits, have to be prepared and gathered first, so that they can be there to teach the others when they come through the tribulation, I'm inferring. Alright, verse 16. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion, Let not your hands be slack, Because once the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Jerusalem, is gathered up, there is work to do. And that is a theme that he introduces here just before the book of Haggai, where he says, Be of good courage, fear not, and work to build the temple of God. I won't pursue that thread further at the moment. But let not your hands be slack. He expects us to be busy. The Lord your God in the midst of you is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over you with singing. So after this destruction, or actually before, if he gets his church all gathered together, he's going to deliver her first before he does physical Israel. And she will sing. I will gather them, verse 18, that are sorrowful for the solemn assembly who are of you, to whom the reproach of it was a burden we will suffer the the reproach, the swings and the arrows of this world. But God is going to take that burden away. And we will rejoice over and possess the land of our enemies. Behold, at that time I will undo all that afflict you. And I will save her that halts and gather her that was driven out. And I will get them praise and fame in every land where they have been put to shame. As Mr. Armstrong said... We win. At that time will I bring you again, even in the time that I gather you. For I will make you a name and a praise among all people of the earth when I turn back your captivity before your eyes, says the Lord. So that which has been downtrodden, that which has been humbled, God is going to exalt. And once we get past Zephaniah now, the last warning that God gives before the captivity occurred, Now the attention turns where we don't any longer have to try to discern whether it's talking about the physical nation or the church. The book of Haggai talks about nothing but the church. We'll get to that next time I speak, God willing, and that will be all for today.